Well, as we enter our text this morning, we find Israel in a precarious situation. We saw some of it last week. We're dropping into the middle of a story. Uh, but what we have here is the army of Israel, which you'll remember has now been whittled down to 600 men. Uh, they were already sorely outnumbered. Now they have far less in number than the Philistines. Uh, and they're facing an opposition, uh, this army of the Philistines, that is both well-armed and very well-populated. Uh, they are merely two miles away from one another, uh, and the Philistines have already been sending in raiding forces into the land of Israel at will and doing whatever they wanted. Uh, and so there is uh, this fear, surely, that is in the camp. Uh, it gets worse when we learn in the verses right preceding our text that uh, between all of the army of Israel that is already sorely, again, outnumbered, there are only two weapons to be had for the 600 men. It says there isn't a sword or a spear among them except for Saul and Jonathan. And that was mainly because the Philistines had made sure that there were no longer blacksmiths in the nation and that even if Israel needed their farming equipment sharpened, that they had to send it down and out, uh, they had to pay it out to the Philistines, have it sharpened there and then sent back home. And so what they have now, again, to their whole army is merely two weapons. And our chapter opens with these two men holding these two weapons, uh, and they're juxtaposed to each other. And so I want us to see first uh, the situation. Um, with little by way of introduction, our, our narrator, interestingly enough, throws us right into action. I mean, do you see that in the very first verse? Jonathan turns to his armor bearer, and out of nowhere, he says, let's go over to the Philistines' front. Uh, we'll go over to where they're hiding, and don't tell my dad. You know, and then once we have that action in motion, now the narrator stops and he wants to focus on several details of backstory. He wants us to know what's going on at camp. He wants us to know the topography of the land. And then he's going to pick up the action once again. Uh, the scene is pretty telling. We have Jonathan on the move. He's about to do something. Uh, and then we learn immediately that what he's doing, he has not told his father, who happens to be the king. And while Jonathan is moving, we see Saul, the king, is staying. It literally says he stayed in the caves or in the pomegranate cave in Michmash. Saul is remaining on the outskirts, far away from the edge of battle. They're kind of hunkered down, I think, waiting for things to blow over, hoping for the best. But there surely is no action taking place. Jonathan has his trusted armor bearer, who, who we will learn to love. We like this guy, though we never get his name. Uh, but Saul has company too. We're informed that he's hanging out with Ahijah, the priest, someone that we've never heard of. And so we get an introduction. You know, Ahijah, whose uncle is Ichabod, the glory has departed, whose dad was the sacrifice-stealing and womanizing Phineas, whose dad was Eli from the rejected priesthood. Uh, and this is who Saul is in company with. We have this rejected king with 600 men following him because everyone else has either fled or will find out later in the chapter they've defected to the other team. Uh, he's sitting with the family of the rejected priest, and he's completely clueless that his son has gone off to war. You know, the author is trying to let us know we are not meant to be impressed with Saul at this current point in his career. He's there, inactive, 
passive, in bad company, and he's been rejected already. We were told last chapter by Samuel that his kingdom was gonna be taken from him. But we are favorably, favorably disposed to Jonathan. I mean, we knew nothing of this man prior to chapter 13. We didn't know Saul had a son. And even when we're introduced to Jonathan originally, we don't know that he's Saul's son. All we're told is that this Jonathan is leading a thousand men. And then we get this little uh, caveat by way of biography. This is the same Jonathan who ran roughshod over the garrison at Geba. So this guy, you know, he's already been successful in battle. He's a leader of men. And it's not until 14 verses later that we're told, oh yeah, and by the way, this is Saul's son. And so this is our second introduction to him. And here he is on the move. Uh, he has turned again to uh, his armor bearer and he has this plan. And so let's look here at this man of action. By looking at Jonathan and looking at this rejected king, God's going to be showing us and the people of Israel what they should be looking for in a future king. Uh, you know, we have Jonathan saying that he's ready to go over to the garrison of the Philistines, uh, but we also learn that he hasn't told his dad. And you know, if you're going to go uh, pick a fight with a pretty big army and you have two weapons, you'd probably at least want to bring the one other guy that has a weapon. Uh, but Jonathan doesn't even tell him, which again tells us that there's something wrong. There's something out of sorts, either in Jonathan's confidence in his father or just in Saul's perception of the way things should be in general. I mean, the Philistines are in Michmash. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Philistines are over uh, two miles away. Uh, they've already been raiding the nation and Jonathan decides that he's gonna head over there. Uh, but we're told before he starts his journey, the topography of the scene. What separates Saul and his men hiding in the caves from the garrison of the Philistines, it says there's these two sharp crags, two large rock croppings that shoot out from the earth with a valley in between them. It says the name of the one rock is slippery and the name of the other rock is thorny. Uh, these are not uh, things that you typically would think of as something to want to make your way down and then to ascend if you're going to go start a fight. Uh, and so for Jonathan to even get to the garrison of the Philistines, he's going to descend slippery, be in the valley exposed, and then ascend up thorny, and then go fight once he gets there. And he's going to have to ascend, as we learn, on hand and foot, meaning it's so steep that he's not going to have a weapon in his hand. He's literally going to be crawling up the face of a rock to then go face his enemies. I mean, militarily, this is a, a nightmare. The enemy has the high ground. Jonathan and his armor bearer are going to be utterly exposed. And we'll see it gets worse than that. Jonathan's like, my plan is that we're going to let them know when we're in the most uh, precarious situation. We're going to let them know, hey, we're coming. And then we'll see what they say. That's, I mean, ultimately his plan when we get there. Uh, once he hits that valley floor again, he'll be seen by the enemy. And then once seen, he has to ascend this other steep rock with no weapon in hand until he gets to the top. But be that, it is, be that as it may, we know this guy, you know, at least has military experience. He's the leader of men, and he's already had major victories in uh, previous battles that are not too far off in the distant past. And so maybe he's got a great plan. But 
our narrator disabuses us of that notion really quickly. So he returns to Jonathan and we pick up with his speech to the armor bearer that he's already said, hey, come follow me. And he says, uh, this is his speech. Let's go to this, the garrisons of these uncircumcised. Meaning, you know, not, they're not God-fearers. They don't listen to his word or his law. They're idolaters. They're uncircumcised. They're the enemies. And we will hear this language not too far from here either. You know, this, uh, after he, he, he names who the enemy is, he, he delivers the line, you know, that if you've watched any good movie, you know, it becomes the tagline of the film. You know, if you grew up in my day, it's the uh, I'm your Huckleberry line, or maybe in the generation a little bit, not too far after mine, it's still my, my generation. Uh, but, you know, the great speech by William Wallace, uh, or, you know, or, or better known as Mel Gibson, um, you know, where, uh, you know, dying in your beds not many years from now. You know, this is that speech. And here's what he says. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I mean, what an amazing theological confession. I mean, Jonathan knows his place. He knows the history of his people. He knows the nature of the God that his people have served. I mean, he knows that God defeated Jericho by, you know, long walks and blaring the stereo. He knows that God, you know, used some bad dreams and broken dishes to give Gideon's 300 victory over the Midians. He knows the history of the people enough to know it says it doesn't really matter whether we have two swords, 10,000 swords, two people, 10,000 people. If God wants us to win, we'll win. So let's just go find out you know, what's on the other side of the mountain. I mean, he knows that God has all power in heaven and on earth and that no one can stay his hand if he wants to put it to something. Jonathan knows that God doesn't need him. He doesn't need his strength or his wisdom or his military prowess. God can do whatever he wants when he wants. Unlike, you'll notice, Saul who's currently hiding out because he only thinks that you can win by power and strength of numbers and so on. He only thinks the way that all people think, which, you know, that the strong always defeat the weak, you know, the rich always, you know, are empowered over the poor. And, and, you know, God has shown time and time again in biblical history that it doesn't work that way in his economy, in his kingdom. And that if he's on your side, then there's no one ultimately that can be against you. You know, Saul's going to sit in that cave until it becomes utterly obvious who's going to win. And then he'll join the fight. But not his son. I mean, Jonathan acts because he believes God is big and God does whatever he wants. But notice, Jonathan doesn't know what God wants. He even acknowledges it. He doesn't know what God's will is. He just knows that if it's God's will, we'll win. <laughs> and if it's not God's will, well, who knows what happens after that part, you know, which is why this plan is very sketchy. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the details here. Uh, his armor bearer, you'll notice, who goes unnamed, but really is our Sam Gamgee of the Bible, says, do whatever's in your heart. Whatever your wish is, is my wish. My heart, literally, my heart 
is in your heart. Meaning, you know, you can't go anywhere, right? Without your heart going with you. And he says, wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. So if that's what you want to do, I'm your guy. You know, even if the plan seems crazy. And so here's the plan. He says, we're going to go down there. And then when we're at the low point, we're going to yell up to the Philistines and be like, hey, you know, we're here. And if they say, wait there, we're going to come get you. He says, we'll just stand there, which seems like, a, again, a, a bad plan. But he says, if they say, hey, come on up here, he says, then we'll know. Then we'll know God's given us the victory and, you know, game over. And so his plan, you'll notice, gives the enemy every advantage. He has positional advantage, numerical advantage. He has all of the weapons he needs. And there is no element of surprise. He's being told ahead of time, here we come. But Jonathan says, I have an advantage. We have God. And if God's with us, then we'll be fine. And so they go down. The Philistines, who have all the confidence in the world, basically say, oh, look, you know, the weasels are coming out of their holes. You know, these Hebrews are now done hiding. They've come out to us and they say, hey, come on up. You know, we got something we want to show you. We have a lesson to teach you. And the great irony, you know, for us as the reader, we know ahead of time and Jonathan knows what they've just done is signal their own destruction. They think they're calling them up to teach them a lesson. And Jonathan already knows if they call us up, God wants us to go and we're going to win. And so they call them up for their own destruction. They have sealed their own fate. Jonathan hears their invitation to the top of the mountain as an invitation from God himself to go claim a victory. And so we're told he climbs up hand and foot, and we get no details, you'll notice, of how he fought. Not even a word about, you know, whether he used his sword or what kind of fight this was. It just says, they fell down before him. And it says, and the armor bearer came behind and put them all out of their misery. And it says within a, a short distance, it's probably somewhere around you know, 10 to 17 yards. It says 20 Philistines died that day. But of course, 20 dead men in an army of thousands and thousands is hardly a great victory, which is why you see in this next section, the results after this are confusion and terror. And it shows us that something supernatural is going on. That this just isn't, you know, a fight uh, of, of a skilled uh, warrior and his armor bearer. That yes, they do some of the fighting, but God goes forward and does a bunch of the fighting. You'll notice there's an earthquake. Uh, there is a, a rumbling. You know, it says the people tremble, but the earth itself trembled because God is there and he is disrupting the whole of it. So much so that that through their terror uh, and through their confusion, they all turn their swords on one another. And so this problem that existed beforehand, Israel has no swords, is solved because they don't need any. The Philistines have plenty of swords that they can use on each other in order to win the victory for the nation. You'll notice it says a very great panic fell upon them. And literally it reads, a panic from God came upon them. That this is God working in their midst. And that's why the author concludes at the end of the story, so Yahweh saved Israel this day. It doesn't say Jonathan did anything. It doesn't you know, credit Saul with anything. It says God himself was present fighting for the people. 
And of course, when all of the hard stuff is done and the battle's pretty much uh, in the bag, Saul decides maybe it's time to join. And he goes through this whole religious rigmarole where he's trying to get the priest to figure out if it's God's will right now, you know, which is Saul so far in the whole narrative. He can't seem to act when he's supposed to act. And now he wants to seek God when it would seem time that now's probably the time to go to battle. He was, well, we should pray about it maybe. Uh, but once he hears a loud enough cry that it seems like the, 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 the victory is really won, he says, oh, forget about the praying thing. Forget about, you know, discerning God's will. Let's just go. And it's all, again, a reminder from the narrative that we have this king who just is inept at his calling. But we already know his kingdom is ending. We've already been told that his throne's been taken. And so as readers, we have to wonder, you know, Saul over here doing nothing. Jonathan, the son of the king, mighty in battle. This has got to be the guy that God's looking for. You know, at least that's where our mind goes. And while that won't be true, we'll learn much about this young man in weeks to come. But what we learn, at the very least, through this story is that while what we see in Saul is not what we want, what we see in Jonathan is exactly what Israel needs. You know, Saul has been here depending on numbers and his own wisdom, and Jonathan's just like, we're God's people, you know? How is it these uncircumcised people are doing this to us and we're just sitting back not doing anything? And we're gonna meet a king who has a very similar philosophy in just a few chapters, and we're going to be able to identify that's the guy we're looking for. We've heard this voice before. We know that this is the kind of man that God desires. Not one who merely looks at the odds and determines decisions by the numbers or puts his finger into the wind to see what the culture's thinking. Or one who engages when it's finally a sure thing. But one who says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, in Jonathan's voice, we do hear the voice of the king because we're going to hear these words in just a few chapters. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? You know, and this little boy is going to go out one-on-one -on -one with the great champion of the Philistines while all of Israel sits and watch, just like Saul in this text. And what's interesting is it says, when Jonathan hears David say those words, it says, as soon as he finished speaking, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as he loved his own soul. Which reminds us of what we just saw with this armor bearer, like, my heart is your heart. And then Jonathan hears, if you will, he hears himself in David, and he says, my soul is as your soul. And, John, and David has no bigger fan, if you will, in the kingdom. And this is the kind of king we need. That's the kind that we want to follow. I mean, there is a reason that even the cowards and defectors of Israel who formerly had run away, all of a sudden joined back up against the Philistines here because they had one who fought for them without fear as he trusted in God. And that emboldened them to do what they were unable to do previously. These ones who had a failure of heart when they saw someone courageous became courageous themselves. I mean, they had one like Jonathan who was willing to face certain death as he descended into a valley of sure death.
only to rise up the other side and defeat the enemy in his ascension. And of course, like Jonathan, so will be David, but also and more so our great King Jesus, who even as we read this morning, right now has all rule and authority and power in heaven and on earth. And he's ruling all things presently, according to scripture in Ephesians chapter one, for the good of his church. This one who faced the enemy literally unarmed, telling even those who had a sword to put them at bay, for that was not how the kingdom was gonna be won. But as his hands were bound against the enemy, he still rose victorious. And people of God, you belong to him. And by the spirit, your heart has been knit to his heart. Where he goes, you will go. As he is, you are and will be which of course should give you the guts to live today because you belong to him. You have everything Jonathan had and more. You do realize all Jonathan had was faith in God. And what gained him the victory wasn't his faith. It was the God that he had faith in. It wasn't, oh, Jonathan, uh, you know, his faith was so strong that God said, I'll finally act. He acted in faith and God was there to save. Who he trusted in was of the utmost importance. He didn't have knowledge of the future. He didn't have superhuman strength. He didn't even know whether God wanted to do it or not. He just believed that if God was in it, it would be victorious. And surely you have no less, but even so much more. You have the same God and you've been you've had him revealed to you in the face of Jesus Christ. And in and through Christ, you know without a shadow of the doubt that God is for you and not against you. That God presently, right now, by the spirit he sealed you with, has promised that he's working everything in heaven and earth presently for your salvation and for your good which people of God should give you the strength to live courageously. It really does mean you can take a chance in this life. You know, your past is dealt with, your sins are forgiven. God has owned it all and holds none of it against you. And your future is certain. And according to God, that future is good. You know how the story ends. And right now, God is saying, as you're in the middle of the story, that he is for you and not against you, that everything is working together for good and nothing could ever separate you from his love. And with that, he then sends you out into the world and just says, take a chance. I mean, have courage. Step out and do what's in your heart. You know, I don't know if it's the Lord's will. Yeah, I don't either. So pray, tell him your will be done, and then do something. <laughs> and if it's not his will, guess what? He'll let you know. You know, how do you know God's in it? You don't until you try. And when you try and he shows you another way and that wasn't what he was, you know, planning for you, then accept it gratefully and try again somewhere else, you know. Have the courage, you know, to ask her to marry you, to, to have the baby, to start a business, to run for office, to have that hard conversation, to witness to that coworker, to do the thing that is in front of you that you're not sure, is this exactly what God wants? If God is for you, who can you be against you? Thy will be done. Do what's on your heart. His heart is knit to your own. And if it's not his will, 
He'll let you know in the results. It is not a sin to try. There's nothing too hard for God. And the bottom line is that all things are working together for good, even in the things that you try and fail at. And therefore, we have the permission to live in this world as those who are courageous, for those who really can, you know, take a chance. We are united to the risen and reigning king. And even if we mess up royally and it all goes wrong, that's not how the story ends. It ends with us ruling and reigning with him in all glory forever and ever. For he has fought on our behalf. And because of that, he's given weaklings and cowards and those who are timid and shy like us the courage to chase after the enemy and to fight, join with him in the good fight of faith. Let us do so in his name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.